Welcome to the ChatGPT Report. I'm your host, Ryan, and today we have a very special guest with us today. His name is Matt Van Italy, and he's the founder and CEO of SEMA. Now, what is SEMA? SEMA helps companies assess and manage the quality, risk, and discipline of their code base. They offer a variety of products and services, including AI Code Monitor, CTO Dashboard, and code base scans. Now, SEMA's products can be used to assess cyber risk, internal security risk, third-party risk, code quality, process quality, as well as team risk. Now, let's dive into what SEMA is and how they can change the market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Matt, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate you giving us the time. Ryan, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, as I like to tell the audience, we try to keep these interviews within 20 minutes. So let's get right to it. So in past interviews, I looked a little bit on your history. You've mentioned that SEMA is a software company obsessed with code quality. So can you elaborate on that for us a little bit? Absolutely. When you think about what software does, and of course it powers almost everything about the world today, you can really divide how to understand the code into functional requirements and non-functional requirements. Functional requirements are, does it do the thing that you hope you wanted it to do? You wanted it a red screen, is there a red screen? You wanted a button, is there a button? There's this whole other world of non-functional requirements, like is the code base secure? Is the development process so we say code, not just we say code base, not just code, because it's really about the team and the process, not just the lines of code themselves. And you're absolutely right. I've I've worked in organizations who really uh, who suffered from not having a strong enough uh, code quality and non-functional requirements, and built SEMA to help help tackle some of those issues. Interesting. Okay. And you know what's funny about that? I've never even heard of the fun- functional versus non-functional. So there's a little education piece just for me as well, too. So I appreciate that. And we talk about code. You know, you've been a coder in the past, but just kind of an off-the-wall question. What's your favorite coding software right now? I love Python. Um, I'm not a Python developer myself, but I love its flexibility and its ability to do deep data science and Huge shout out to our engineers who are building our newest product, the AI Code Monitor, uh, using Python. I love that. And you're not the first person to say they like Python, so there that is. I guess I should start with Java as the easiest one, though, for me. I I should get to learn to code, but I don't know if I ever will or not, but we will see. Um, And then, you know, I, I asked this to another individual as well a while ago. What's your least favorite coding software then? Huh. No, all of them have 
some strengths and some weaknesses, but I think um, I think COBOL is probably on the on the the short list. Not that necessarily it's an, an inherently bad language, but um, we help companies of all shapes and sizes help manage the uh, the risks associated with code. And one of the biggest risks is not having enough developers who know the language. And so uh, languages with fewer developers, like COBOL, um, are, are on the are, are on the short list of of uh, software that needs um, that could use some help. So it's probably I'd put COBOL on. Okay. Well, that, again, that's you know, I, I actually have hardly heard of that one. So that would make more sense as that's one that you don't use too, too often. So that's very good. Now, you, you, I have to go back to you yourself, Matt. You mentioned in, in your LinkedIn, I was looking you up a little bit, was, you know, doing a little studying before this. You had mentioned that you invented the generative AI bill of materials. Can you walk me through what that is? And remember... I'm not much of a coder or a, uh, I, I tell the audience, you know, I'm, I'm just your normal guy here. So explain it to me in normal guy terms here. Don't go too deep. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So our, as part of our newest product, the AI code monitor, the fundamental thing we're doing is measuring how much code in a, in a code base of all those lines of code, how much were purely written by humans, how much were partially written by humans and partially written by Gen AI. We call that blended Gen AI code. And also how much code was purely written by Gen AI. Uh, we call that pure. The generative AI bill of materials is a list of all of the code in a code base that has at least some generative AI. So some of all of the pure Gen AI code and all of the modified Gen AI code. Is that making sense so far? Yes. And and my question to that, I'm going to ask you another question before you finish there is how how can you how can they t- how can you tell? And the reason I ask that is because when I guess ChatGPT originally came out, we had a lot of issues with colleges trying to figure out was this paper written by AI and and there there really was a toss up they couldn't figure it out. So how does the, how can you tell bet- between generative AI and just an individual writing it? Sure. So we're using a blended set of techniques. Uh, and I should say, you know, one of the caveats is if the, the snippet of code is too short, it's impossible to tell who wrote it. Right? The phrase, hello world, is identical whether or not it was written by a, uh, a human or, uh, or a chatbot. And so part of doing this, the science right is making sure there is a large enough set of the code to actually run that analysis on. Uh, well, our team worked harder to get the, that snippet as small as possible to be able to still make an, an accurate assessment. When we have the right size, um, when we have a snippet that's large enough, we apply a couple different tests at once, uh, run a couple different tools at once. We do run machine learning to determine if the code is uh, was written with machine learning, a little of an inception moment maybe. Uh, we've trained the model looking at what is definitely uh, human-generated code uh, it, that was written before um, uh, these Gen AI tools came out, and we compare it to code that was definitely written with Gen AI. So we have good and reliable training sets. When we've run explainability methods on our results, we found that um, uh, we are picking up things like different tabs and spaces, um, sort of like formatting um, in, in, it is formatting, but formatting in, in you know, paragraph style in, in human language, 
it actually looks different for um, uh, for human written code and also you know human written code versus generative AI code. Mm. And then we also look at um, what we call behavioral measures. So if there was no code written for five minutes and then a hundred lines of code was added all at once, that's likely going to come from somewhere else. Now it could have come from open source. It could have come from um, Stack Overflow, but it also could have come from generative AI. This is more likely. So we use a combination of the features of the code, like tabs and spaces, and the behavior of the development activity to get to a, a pretty good assessment, a uh, pretty good accuracy rate uh, on what is and isn't Gen AI code. Fair, fair. And I, I think you made a good point there with the, with, with the good morning, where it's like it's the same thing each, you know, it's not too hard to tell, but it, it's almost as if the AI leaves a watermark, the bigger the code gets. Um, that That's that's what we had said on a, I had said on a past episode, at least from the writing style, is if you have a short paragraph, you won't be able to tell if it was human or AI written, but the second you go to a 10-page paper, you can start to see similarities in, in the writing style that AI has put on. So that, that makes total sense about almost a watermark on the code there. Very, very good there. Very well said. Very well said. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of get into more of what SEMA does because, you know, we hear a lot of buzzwords in the AI space. And if you're anything like me, like I've mentioned earlier, I, I see a lot of stuff. And I go, man, I, I'd, I'd really like to fully understand what that is. So give me an elevator pitch on what does SEMA do at a high level here? Sure. So let I'll give you the elevator pitch on, on the AI code monitor product. I like it. it begins by assessing how much of the code is generative AI purely or blended with developers or not gen AI coded at all. That's sort of the provenance of the code. We then roll up the results to chief technology officers and legal counsel because there is so much legal and security risk associated with gen <laughs> yeah. AI code. It's really important, but you have to do it the right way. We also have a developer tool, so they have real-time notification of, am I on track for my jurisdiction's compliance standards and my company's standards? So they're not guessing. They have some tooling. And then we compare it all to a regulations database. There are so many different regulatory bodies coming out with uh, conflicting and overlapping um, rules and regulations that we're showing uh, our clients where they are and are not at risk based on what jurisdictions they're in compared to what their code looks like. Fascinating. Okay. Wow. That is, that, <laughs> that, that, that covers it. That is solid. Now with all of that in mind, with, with AI and LLMs in full swing, how do you protect yourself from the chat GPTs of the world, particularly their most recent unveiling of the GPT agents, from affecting SEMA and what you guys are trying to accomplish here? That's a really good question. So you're saying how will it affect SEMA as opposed to how um, can companies protect themselves, other companies protect themselves? Yes, because I, 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 my, I guess my more question is do you, do you, how, how does SEMA stand on its own apart from you know all the all the new stuff that's coming out with with uh, the GPTs or how are they how are you utilizing it I guess to make SEMA stand out really understood understood so we are definitely using LLM uh, and training them ourselves to uh, to be the build the best possible code detection tool 
we can. Um, but from a, a business perspective, we very much see ourselves as partners to all of the LLM providers. And they will absolutely, they use, their customers will absolutely need to demonstrate the provenance of the code that they are building in order to meet insurers' requirements and investors' requirements and regulators' requirements. So we are, just based on our previous work on, on comprehensive code base scans, we've, we've analyzed over a trillion dollars worth of, of software organizations already, even before this product. We, we're, we like our chances to serve as a, as a impartial arbiter of, you can really trust when SEMA says this is how much code is Gen AI or not, it really is right based on all of our work on analyzing code long before we got to analyzing Gen AI code in particular. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so without, without generative AI, you guys really want, you, you need generative AI just as much as generative AI needs you, right? <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. I love that. Okay. Fantastic. That is, I, 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 I love what you said over there with the legal side of things. I think that's a lot of things people aren't thinking about right now. I, I definitely haven't until we've had this conversation. I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. We need to know about if the code is written by a generative AI or by an individual because there's so many legality risks and, and everything else that goes into that. So could not agree more. The uh, U.S., and it's true globally, but it's the U.S. Copyright Office recently came out with a white paper, I think in the like, last two weeks, and they said, we know that if, the, if a piece of work was completely written by uh, Gen AI, it's not going to get copyright protection, but we don't know where the line is going to be drawn. Yep. And that's a, a very honest answer. And part of it is um, technology like ours is coming now to actually help them measure it and then create a standard based on it. But I would say to everybody who's using it, I absolutely would encourage your developers to uh, to use Gen AI. It's such a productivity tool. It helps them stay in the flow, but it's not too early to start thinking about the, the compliance risk. Uh, mm-hmm. in the, I'm going to geek out for a little bit. There's a really good analogy here from open source. And open source, as you know, is code that's um, freely accessible. It's written by the community. Uh, today, all code or almost all code has code that's not written by the developers. It's written by the open source community. So there's this analogy here that code is already made up in part of open source. All of those kinds of regulations, like a software bill of materials, which already exists for open source, that is coming for Gen AI. Uh, and that's why we built, uh, invented, and, and, and built the generative AI bill of materials, or GBOM, just like the FBOM for software bill of materials exists for open source. So all your listeners who've ever had to think about open source, legal risk, security risk, compliance risk, all of that is coming for Gen AI code. And the faster you start planning and getting ready for it and knowing what's inside your code base, the easier uh, the easier it will be to meet all of those standards. Correct, yes. Now, are you guys big into Europe or the EU at all? Because I know they're already cracking down on a lot of this stuff. I, I had an episode recently kind of talk about how they're coming up with, I believe it was a code of ethics for AI already. Exactly right. Exactly right. We're uh, we're honored to serve some major European organizations, and um, you know the equivalent of um, you know the states in Germany regulating, in addition to the country of Germany, in addition to the EU, layers upon layers of uh, of regulation. And uh, we think it's likely that the uh, the regulators will be more strict in Europe. Uh, and so, for European listeners, I would you know, everything we said holds true, but it's 
it's even more time pressing uh, for you, given what we expect to be the, the regulatory uh, position. Right. Right. Okay. That, that makes a lot more sense. But, and, and, and I feel like Europe's always a little bit ahead on the regulatory side of things. And so it, it, it only makes sense that that's going to flow into the States at some point. So, you know, my advice to listeners too, is get ahead of it while you can, you know? So that is fantastic. I, you've opened my eyes a little bit more to what SEMA does. This was great because I, I really needed to hear that as well as that's just another great talking point to have out there. Uh, in the world. Now, finally, after we, you know, discuss all this coding, what I want to get a little personal and just kind of get a little into who, who are we talking to, you know, and we, and we talk a lot about accolades, you know, you're the co-founder, CEO of SEMA, but what is a failure in your career that will stick with you either, man, I won't make that again, or, you know, that was a pretty good lesson right there. You know, what, what is something that happened in your career that just was a failure in general? Yeah, I, I love this question. I hope my answer is fair. If not, you can push push back a little bit. Okay. I right. think one of the things I learned the hard way was not only understanding the role that I like doing the best and also the sector or industry that I'm in, but also the stage of the organization. Uh, companies or organizations, not just companies, um, have life cycles just like humans and other living things. And, and in my experience, there's basically four, uh, four stages. There's Startup from zero to one. There's fast growth from like one to eight. There's good or great and staying there. You're eight or nine or ten trying to stay there. And then there's turnaround where you used to be, the organization used to be great, it isn't anymore and needs to get back. My experience for me, and I think it's true for most people I've met, is people only really like at most two of those stages um, based on your, your DNA or your metabolism or whatever. And I've had the great pleasure to, to work in companies and organizations across all four of those stages. And based on that, I've learned that there are some I like a lot more than others. Uh, and I, I don't think I would have learned, known that if I hadn't done it the hard way. But um, I really encourage folks to, if you're earlier in your career, make sure you've tried each of them out. because They feel so different, even in the same industry, even in the same role you have, because it's such a, a hidden driver of, uh, of job success and happiness. Gotcha. Understanding what role as well as the stage. I like that. Now you mentioned startup fast growth, staying around or staying, uh, you know, slow growth and then the turnaround. Do you have, when you say two of those, are you saying, let's say you like the startup and fast growth or you like the fast growth and staying, or can you interchange and go, I like the startup and I like the turnaround stage too. Yeah, well, this is totally confidential, right? It's not going on a podcast or anything. Just kidding. I actually am the happiest. <laughs> in, uh, boy, this would be awkward if I thought this was secret. Uh, I'm actually happiest in fast growth uh, and turnaround. Um, those are situations where you have uh, a meaningful amount of resources and are moving quickly. Now, I've just spent the last six years um, working very hard to take SEMA from a startup to where we are today. So I didn't take that advice. And what I would say is it's been so incredibly rewarding to work with my colleagues to build something that didn't exist that really matters, not just AI code monitor, but our, our comprehensive code base scans product too, it's been worth it. So despite really being more of a, of a growth man and a um, turnaround person, growth person and turnaround person, the, the first years of SEMA, um, uh, it was still worth it. And now, of course, um, we get the benefit, which is we are in massive growth. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very glad. I'm so lucky work with this team as we build build something that really matters. 
And you're, and you're right in your element, too, in the fast growth part of it. So we will stay tuned, and I'm very interested to see how you guys fare as well as what you guys are doing out there because it does seem something that is very valuable out there to organizations as well as individuals. So that was, again, Matt with SEMA, guys. Thank you again for joining me, Matt. I really, really appreciate it. I had such a great time, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.